Hi, I'm Harrison. And I'm Alex. And this is Dream a Little Deeper, a critical retrospective on the Walt Disney Animation Studios films. Today, we're going off to Neverland and talking about Peter Pan. So with Peter Pan, we begin to see a bit of a lack of relevant history to talk about. In my main Walt Disney and animation sources that I consult for each episode, there is not a lot of information on this movie. Scholars have noted this lack of scholarship because they say Peter Pan is one of the, quote, lackluster, end quote, post-war films. But I was able to cobble something together for today. Similar to Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan was a story that Walt Disney carried with him for years. He saw a touring production of the 1904 play by Sir James Barry in 1913, which gave him the inspiration in the first place. So before I go into the film's production history, I want to talk a little bit about the source material. Similar to how Lewis Carroll created Alice in Wonderland, Barry created Peter Pan in stories that he told the sons of his friends, Sylvia, Llewellyn, Davis. Davis ended up dying from cancer, leaving her sons orphans, and Barry unofficially adopted them. He turned the stories into a play that follows the story of Peter Pan, a mischievous but innocent boy, and his adventures in Neverland. Barry would go on to revise the play for years after its debut until he published the script in 1928. People loved this story from the get-go, and it was quickly adapted into a 1924 silent film starring Betty Bronson as Peter. The film was basically a recorded production of the staged play, especially in the technical sense. Actors flew on wires, and Nana and the Crocodile were played by human actors in costumes. However, with this switch in medium, filmmakers could make more creative decisions to help enhance the story. A live actress played Tinkerbell, who in the play was just portrayed by a spot of light. Additionally, the film allowed for special effects, so you get cool shots like the flying pirate ship that could not be achieved on stage. But with animation, there were new possibilities that Walt wanted to explore. So he proposed the idea of adapting Peter Pan into an animated film in 1935. This is when Walt's creative energies were solely focused on the animation studios, as he was well into production on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. In fact, Walt wanted Peter Pan to be the studio's second film, but he could not secure the rights until 1939. So story development began in 1940 with the goal of releasing it as his sixth feature-length animated film after 1942's Bambi. So by 1939, Walt had a pretty clear plan on how he wanted to structure the studio's output moving forward. He wanted to release three movies a year, each falling into a different tier of animation quality. The first tier would be your Bambis. Animation historian Michael Barrier says these pictures would be, quote, distinguished by pictorial opulence and characters that required straight drawing. They would get special treatment in the studio and quite possibly in theaters, end quote. So these would be your films that would fall into Chris Pallant's Disney formalist umbrella, artistically ambitious, emotionally strong, and hyper-realistic. Then you had your second tier, which would be your Peter Pans. These films were closer to, quote, an ordinary run-of-the-mill type of production. And finally, Walt wanted to make more package films, which would fall into his third tier. But you can probably guess how all these plans ended up going, especially if you've been listening to all our episodes because of the war. So the United States enters World War II in 1942. Disney does contract work for the government to stay afloat financially, and most major creative projects are either put on hold or turned into shorts. So Peter Pan is put on hold. I think it's very funny that he, Walt was like, three movies a year, totally feasible. And now, and now they're just getting up to the point where they can do two a year. 
Yeah. One of those being a Pixar, maybe. Okay, so but even after the war, despite the studio's financial hardships, he was still optimistic about this plan, especially to the press. In 1946, he relayed this plan to the New York Times and said he could probably release Peter Pan as soon as 1948. However, a few weeks later, the studio announced it had to lay off 450 employees, which was almost half of its workforce. This was due to a 25% increase in base pay that the union, the Screen Cartoonists Guild, negotiated. Obviously, the Walt Disney Company wasn't really in the place to afford this at the time, but Walt agreed to it, and the work on feature-length films stopped for the time being. Cinderella's smash success gave the studio the money to refocus on feature-length animated films. Crews were working on Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan well before Cinderella, but Cinderella's reception definitely reshaped the studio's vision for these projects. When it came to adapting the play, Walt grappled with two questions. How close should this follow the original text, and how dark should it actually be? Original drafts went with a more loose interpretation of the play. This draft included a scene at the beginning that would go into Peter's backstory. Uh, there were also plans for some darker embellishments, like this one scene where Peter kidnaps Wendy and brings her to Neverland. However, that all changed after the backlash Walt received following the release of Alice in Wonderland. He decided keeping it true to the source material was best. Walt also worried about making Peter Pan too dark. A lot of the original artwork for the film was really sinister, more so than previous Disney films, and he ended up removing scenes that he took from the original play to make his film less dark. So the pirates no longer killed the Indians at the end, Disney's Peter does not forget Wendy at the end as easily as the book Peter does, and Tinkerbell does not die from poison after ratting out Peter and the gang to Captain Hook. From a technical perspective, the studio continued to animate scenes from live-action references, but unlike the production of Alice in Wonderland, only a few voice actors did the references for their characters. This included Walt's favorites Catherine Beaumont and Bobby Driscoll, who voiced Wendy and Peter Pan, and radio actor Hans Conried, who voiced Captain Hook and Mr. Darling. Um, having one actor play Hook and Mr. Darling was an element from the stage play that Walt ended up keeping in the final film. And speaking of Captain Hook... So basically, like, every source I consulted, whether it was by Disney or not, talked about the difficulties the studio had when constructing his character. Scholars and critics called him an unsettling character because he would switch between being a comedian and a menace. Walt assigned Captain Hook to one of the studio's top animators, Frank Thomas, and he and the movie's director, Clyde Geronimi, kept going back and forth on whether to make Hook foppish or mean and menacing. Michael Barrier says this debate shows in the movie, noting, quote, Captain Hook, the character who is the hinge on which the film swings, is never defined as clown or villain. He is not a mixture of both, but alternates between the two throughout the film, end quote. Barrier says that this duality we see in Hook is due to the fact that animators and story writers did not know what Walt wanted. Instead of having a vision for Hook and relaying it, Walt wanted to see what Frank Thomas just came up with on his own, because Walt did not have a vision to begin with. Apparently, the only guidance Thomas got was one comment. Walt said something along the lines of, oh, I think he got something going here, after months of work. At the end of the day, he didn't care enough about his Animation Studios films to have an opinion, and as Barrier notes, quote, was content to leave the resolution of such issues to his animators, end quote, because his true passions were elsewhere. Of course, we can tie this back to Walt's leadership style in the Animation Studios after the 1941 animator strike. I mentioned before that after the strike, Walt stopped trusting his animators and began to pull away from the studios gradually. 
With Cinderella and Alice, he left all the decisions to the nine old men, the studio's most experienced animators. And with each production following Cinderella, Walt's disinterest grew. With Peter Pan, production was rushed. Animators worked on scenes before the script was finished. And when it came to the overall vision and direction, Walt just refused to make a decision. And Barrier says this confusion also comes across in the overall tone and theme of the movie. While the story of Peter Pan is about children and the childhood desire to not grow up, he says the characters Peter, Wendy, Tinkerbell, and Tiger Lily are all, quote, remarkably adolescent, end quote, which gives the film a more high school drama kind of vibe, specifically because the three female characters seemingly compete for Peter's attentions. So, like, if Walt isn't focusing on his animation studios, then, like, what was capturing his attention in the 1950s? What was taking his creative energies away? So he continued to produce live-action films. During the three summers of Peter Pan's production, Walt was in England working on the films The Story of Robin Hood in 1951, The Sword in the Rose in 1952, and Rob Roy and the Highland Rose in 1953. He was notably absent when Peter Pan was moving from storyboard to animation in 1951, which meant the nine old men and the film's directors made most, if not all, of the creative decisions. He even became engrossed in a personal project. He basically created a model train in his backyard that people could ride around on. And some say he would just spend like hours a day working on it. Well, there's the Disneyland nugget. Yeah, no, There's exactly. where Disneyland started. Well, and speaking of Disneyland, funny that you mentioned that because in, by 1952, an even bigger project had captured his imagination. And this is when he began to draft officially the ideas for an amusement park, which would become Disneyland. So he had this idea for a really long time and was kind of quietly working behind the scenes on it. But in 1952, it's like when he was really trying to get the money to make it happen in reality. Honestly, you could make a whole separate podcast about Disneyland, its history, its cultural significance, and how it shaped the conception of amusement parks in the United States. But to keep myself sane while writing these history segments, I'm just going to kind of go over some basics, all just to emphasize how Walt was disengaged from the animation studios at this time. So Walt started a brand new company during this time. He called it WED, which were his initials, and pulled talented workers from the Disney production team to work on some vague ideas, concepts. He just kind of wanted to see what would work, what didn't work. No one really knew what it was for, and workers didn't really have a say in whether or not they would be transferred to WED. Walt was just kind of like, hey, you're going to do this now. So Roy Disney knew about the larger project and absolutely hated the idea, thought it was a waste of money, but Walt ignored him and just kept working on it. After starting WED, Walt quickly realized he needed to secure the finances in order to make the park a reality. This drives his decision to go into live television. His first television special, One Hour in Wonderland, drew in 90% of the viewing audience. It was so popular that the three major networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, asked him to do more television work and offered to sign contracts with him. So he, Walt spent 48 hours straight with an artist who sketched his draft of the park, his vision, what he wanted it to be. He sent the draft over with Roy to New York City, and Roy made offers to the networks. The brothers offered the networks a weekly show for $5 million in return. It took months to finally make this deal because it was an absurdly large amount of money. Finally, the third-ranked network, ABC, signed a deal with the Disneys, and construction on this park began. But now, circling back to Peter Pan's production, I did want to make a quick note about the music of the film. Because Walt originally wanted to release this back in the 30s, he had Frank Churchill write the songs. 
However, in the 1950s, which was around the time Walt began to hire commercially successful musicians from Tin Pan Alley to write songs for his movies, the company announced Sammy Kahn and Sammy Fain were now composing songs for Peter Pan, with incidental music scoring by Oliver Wallace. Most of Churchill's elaborate musical numbers were replaced, including a song that Captain Hook was going to sing. It was replaced by the song The Elegant Captain Hook that his crew sings. So once again, we see Walt wanting to include more popular songs in the film as a way to draw a greater audience appeal. Peter Pan was originally released in 1953 as a double feature with the true-life adventure documentary short Bear Country. It made $7 million domestically, and all in all, reviews said that the movie was good, pretty solid, but definitely was not praised like Cinderella. Critics and the public liked the film's artistry, technical mastery, and color. They thought the music was okay, but nothing memorable. Despite Walt's intention to keep his film as close to the play as possible, Brosley Cowther of the New York Times criticized the film's lack of faithfulness to the original play, claiming it, quote, has the story but not the spirit of Peter Pan, as it was plainly conceived by its author and is usually played on the stage. Adaptation gripes aside, David Fisher thought the whole film was a disappointment, saying, quote, As expected, Disney brings Barry's fairy tale, his comic strict mind, and sentimental vulgarity. The result is Superman, or Superpan. The mistiness, the rather dowdy fantasy, are lost. A not very convincing romp with Indians, pirates, and so forth remains. Personally, I was not shocked by the film, only disappointed. For Disney has done this sort of thing so often before, but with more style. End quote. But other critics thought that Disney's film enhanced the stage play, specifically because animation as a medium allowed for the film to show the characters fly without a harness and brought the literal magic of the play to life. A 1953 review of Peter Pan in The Hollywood Reporter said, quote, It is doubtful if the wistful fantasy has ever been done with such charm and beauty as it fills the Walt Disney version of James M. Barry's fantasyful play. End quote. But then this review also went on to praise the scene with the Indians, saying, quote, Candy Candido is good for laughs as the Indian chief, particularly in his basso profundo version of what makes the red man red, end quote. So this whole scene in Peter Pan has sparked a lot of controversy over the years, and it's a topic that we'll go into more during our discussion. In the end, Walt's feelings about Peter Pan were similar to his feelings about Alice in Wonderland. He didn't love it. It wasn't his crowning glory like Snow White or Cinderella. And he thought that the characters were, quote, too cold. But the film didn't go away forever. The movie inspired a ride at Disneyland, a musical, a direct-to-video sequel, a Disney Junior television show, and the entire Tinkerbell spin-off franchise. And the company has announced plans for a live-action movie called Peter Pan and Wendy for Disney+. Plus. It's also in Kingdom Hearts. And it's... <laughs> and it's also in Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> there you go. So during our last episode on Alice in Wonderland, Tasman talked about a bit of controversial discourse surrounding Lewis Carroll and his personal life. During that conversation in our interview, she also mentioned a bit about J.M. Barry's personal life. As I just noted, Barry is the author of the original Peter Pan play. As she notes, the relationship the two authors had with children inspired their works. But to Tasman's knowledge, Barry's relationship with the children is more widely known as being innocent. But on the like flip side of the coin, mm -hmm. 
J.M. Barry, his relationship with the family that he wrote Peter Pan for seems to be, from like what we know, completely innocent. Mm-hmm. It seems that he bonded with the, the mother, I think, and like that he might have even been in love with her or had an affair or something. I can't remember the details. But that he created Peter and Wendy to entertain the children, her children, while he was almost like trying to restrain himself from falling in love with this lady who was already married. So that, because I like, I always compare um, Peter and Alice just because of how I grew up with them. Mm-hmm. That is like the lovely, innocent version of how Alice is absolutely not. <laughs> yes. And I think that kind of like, it comes across in the tones of the two films, right? Like, yeah. when I watch, I didn't watch Alice in Wonderland until I was, I was older. Because um, yeah. that was just one we didn't have on DVD, but my grandma had it at her house. So if I'd go over when I was older, I'd watch it. And I always felt like I was watching something like I shouldn't be watching. Yes. Whenever you watch Alice in Wonderland. You know, you're kind of like, I don't feel like this is kid appropriate or like, if my parents came in and saw me watching this, what would they think? Like, this seems off. Whereas with Peter Pan, like, that was one we had on VHS. Like, we watched it all the time. It was my one of my favorites growing up, right? So mm-hmm. you kind of get a scent. So it's interesting how, like, through adaptation, the lives of these authors that you've mentioning really do still come through. Yeah. When you look at the tones. Also, something that's just occurred to me. We, as in a Western society, heaven is up, hell is down. Mm-hmm. They fly to Neverland, she falls to Wonderland. Ooh. Ooh, that's good. <laughs> that's really good. Also, Fuck she's... me. I'm so overwhelmed by this... Po- <laughs> what? Okay, and, like, she's the she's the Red Queen, right? Like, there's the... Like, yeah. in the books, it's the Red Queen, right? So yeah. there's, like... Mm-hmm. You know, you think of the devil, like, bad, red, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. And red is always, like, the, the color of passion, which could be love, but it also could be murder. Mm-hmm. Whereas green, Peter Pan. Life. Lovely and child. And also the fact that with the um, the boys, the lost boys, the thing is they stay children forever. Mm-hmm. And they always stay innocent and young and lovely. Whereas in, I was going to say the underworld, that that's <laughs> Hades. Um, in Wonderland... Underland they they're almost ageless they feel like these magical creatures that have been there for forever and have probably experienced i mean they have experienced trauma because the red queen has taken over right but it feels almost like in in narnia how all of the narnians have been trapped in time and they might have they've been there for a hundred years and so alice then going into that world she is the child she is like the anomaly whereas wendy and her brothers going to neverland they're one of a lot of children so they're safe there's like safety in numbers they're Mm -hmm. all looking out for each other um something that occurred to me just not about alice itself but i'm not the only one that links alice and wendy because there was um it i don't know if it's because they the films came out at a similar time but there's a play that i've i've got it like physically i haven't seen it but it's called peter and alice Mm. And it's not to do with... It's something like the a descendant of J.M. Barry and a descendant of the girl that inspired Alice. And I, I don't know if it's to do with when the books came out, when the films came out, but it seems to be that there is some inherent link between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Maybe about the fact that it is fully grown men writing stuff for children. Yeah. But something that does in our society just link them together all the time. Right. Well, and then... In- the Disney chronology, like, they come out back-to-back. 
Alice came uh, out. In which 50- one was first? Alice. So Alice came out okay. in fifty one, and I think Peter Pan came out in fifty three. Okay. So they they're right next to each other, and like basically Disney was developing them, you know, from the beginning of the company in the thirties. They got put on hold because of the war, and then picked back up mm-hmm. again after the war. So like they've kind of it's linked in the Disney history as well. You know, mm-hmm. they've always kind of been grouped together. Not to mention yeah. Catherine Beaumont, she voices both Wendy and Alice. Oh! Yeah. I didn't realize, how old was she? Was she like she an was adult or? 12 when she did Alice, I want to say. Okay. Um, around that age. Mm. And, oh my God, I just remembered the boy that played Peter Pan, who did the voice of Peter Pan, he had the most tragic life. I think he was one of like the, the Disney kids mm-hmm. and, um, he he died in his 30s from a drug overdose. Wow. And he, I can't remember the kind of interim, but he had, I want to say, a few kids. And I, no, I'm not going to say that because I might be making it up entirely. I might be filling in the blanks. But I think he was alone. He had family, but they he wasn't in contact with them. And I believe he was found by like neighbors because he was dead for such a long time in his flat and no one bothered to check on him like he just wasn't important to anybody that his body his dead body started to smell so much that the neighbors called the police and complained like that's how alone he was wow that's that's insane yeah and also the um i i think i looked into it because i've always like fancied peter as a kid right and he not only did the voice but the face of peter was sort of modeled off of him so if you see a picture of him as a child like that is peter pan he is peter pan but how ironic i don't know if that's the right word that peter pan is a child that lives forever and then the guy that voiced him died when he was still so young Mm -hmm. in a self-inflicted way as well yeah it's just that's that's hard that's hard Old school Disney is all so dark. That's why I love the history of it, though. Like, mm. that's why I want to, like, talk about this stuff. Because I just think it, it's, like, it's so dark and it's so sad. But, like, when you take that and you put it next to, like, this family-friendly friendly content, you yeah. know, in this medium that's considered children's a children's medium, like, there's so much. It's such a paradox, right? You don't think the two should be able to coexist. And I think that's why when you look at the history, like, it's even more intriguing. Mm-hmm. But how weird also that if we look at the old ones, they seem so dark when we kind of dig into it. But so the old school Disney is also dark when on the surface it was seen as just family or for kids. Whereas now there's so much more emphasis on diversity, which is incredible, and um making sure that things are actually appropriate for the age we pitch them at because mm-hmm. i'm sorry bambi's mom that was a you that film that was a fucking you obscene absolutely not and yeah they the modern ones have so much more political background in them mm-hmm. when actually they are probably more appropriate for kids than the old ones ever were yeah It's such an, like, oxymoron, is that the right word? It doesn't seem right. Yeah. How bizarre. I'm drinking out of a mason jar today, like the fucking... You're such a hipster. Yeah. Yeah. It's you with your mason jar of coffee and your blanket that do it for me. (laughs) Excuse you, mason jar of Diet Coke. Let's be on brand here. (laughs) 
honestly, mason jar of Diet Coke is like Harrison Eat in an better. image. Like that is that is you. Look, that is the epitome as of much you. As, as much as I try to make sure it's not, it absolutely is. It really is. So Peter Pan. So Peter Pan. Peter you, Pan. You, you <laughs> texted me uh, while you were watching it the first time because <laughs> we might. We might be out. We might be uh, caught up to our previous production and now out of the stuff that Alex lost. But um, you watched this multiple times because you were taking. You were too busy writing the first time. Yes. Uh, and you texted me and were like, "I have thoughts. I have feelings. <laughs> I am upset." <laughs> yeah. Explain. Okay, so I think like in order for me to accurately describe my experience watching this movie this week. I have to talk about like what this movie was to me as a child because a lot of my thoughts and feelings about this are me watching this movie as an adult after having not seen it in like at least 10 years. I think the last time I watched this was like before high school. But when I was a kid, and I'm not talking like 10-year-old kid, I'm talking about like 3-year-old kid, all right? So my parents were subscribed to the Disney Movie Club, so we'd get, like, those clamshell VHS tapes all the time. But we only had, I think, like, 12 or 13 total. And out of all of them, Peter Pan was one of them. And it was one that not only I started watching when I was really young, but I returned to a lot when I was really young. Um, I think it's, like, one of, like, the handful that I watched when I was a kid and like really really enjoyed watching um and of and it's like the first one this is like the first time this has really happened like in our podcast like I've seen basically up until I think like the package films I'd seen all those movies but like none really had like an emotional resonance with me but as a kid watching it like before watching it this week, what I remember my experience being as a kid was I loved how, like, I felt it was a very dark movie. I felt scared a lot watching it, and I liked that. I thought it was intriguing. Um, and I just was really entertained by it. I don't really know, at the time, couldn't really pinpoint why. And I loved Wendy as a character. That's why, like, and so I would, like, you know, when my brother and I were little... I had like a Wendy costume and he had a Peter Pan costume with a hat <laughs> and we would play, we'd play Peter Pan like around the house and there's actually um, a VHS, like we, my dad would like, had a video camera and would record like, you know, big moments in our lives and there's a video of, I think, oh man, I was probably five because my sister was born. So Matt was three or four, Elizabeth was like baby and there's a video of my brother as Peter Pan, my dad as Captain Hook, and me as Tinkerbell slash Wendy, and they're reenacting one of the fight scenes from the movie. <laughs> and, like, of course, ad-libbing around it and everything, but it just was really funny. So, like, it's just, like, a, it was, like, one of those movies that the whole family enjoyed. It, like, brought us together. So it had it has those feelings around it as well. However, watching it this time around... I was entertained, but I also was kind of like, why? Like, I see why I liked this movie as a kid, but why did I like this movie as a kid? So not a fan anymore? No, okay, so I just have a lot of complicated feelings around it right now. Okay. 
So I kind of categorized this into like six different things. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I love what this show has become because initially it was like, oh yeah, freeform discussion with some, some structure and interviews. And now it's like, look at all the fucking homework we did and brought to this. I read a book. Let me talk about this book. Alex, I have my thoughts in six categories. Let's go. <laughs> Yes, and they all kind of go in a certain order. Of course, we can, like, if you think of something, we can veer off. I'm not trying to make this as structured as it needs to be. No, that's fine. It was more so just so that I kind of, like... I know. I'm making fun of you. It's fine. I don't care. (laughs) Okay. So I want to start first with just the character of Wendy herself. Okay. And the role of women in in this movie. Oh, you mean mothers. Sort of. Kind of. We'll get there. <laughs> the, the, the theme of mothers actually didn't really like stick out to me, if I'm being completely honest. I'm talking more about how shocked I was at how like we have such a like tedious, stereotypical depiction of women's relationships in this. No two women are friends in this yeah. whole movie, and they are so catty. It is aggravating like i knew that the mermaids you know like splashed her with water and they're like that's all we were only trying to drown her and then peter just like you know it's like they try to like attack her and Mm -hmm. stuff but what i wasn't expecting was like how like watching it now i was like oh that's that's bad that is not good also realizing how um mean tinkerbell is and how jealous she is of Wendy and the attention that Peter gives Wendy. I like, mm-hmm. you know, I know like, you know, you remember like, oh yeah, she tells the Lost Boys to shoot Wendy down, but like you don't remember. <laughs> like I didn't really I think realize how it was spawned out of jealousy. Mm-hmm. Um and even with like the mermaids, going back to the mermaids, like they see Peter has brought another girl to his time with them and then they just get jealous and then that's why they like splash her with water and everything. Mm-hmm. Um and then, of course, Wendy gets jealous when Peter's attentions land on Tiger Lily. It's implied that she kisses Peter and then his face gets red and he, like, gets all excited and she's just, Wendy's just, like, not having it and she gets real upset about it. And you're like, mm-hmm. huh, like, good good to know that, um, you know, we're showing really healthy women yeah. and relationships in this. I- yeah, I'm of two minds of all of this. One, it's weird and gross that all of the women are weirdly adolescently possessive of Peter and like fight over him constantly. Mm-hmm. It's like literally pitting women against women for the the sake of question mark because <laughs> nothing ever really comes of it. Mm-hmm. But also like it is an extremely childish thing to do. Do mm. and if Neverland is supposed to be this a space where no one grows up, no one's gonna have a healthy semblance of a relate of like of a relationship here because like th- that kind of relationship at, for children, anyways, in my experience, is hard. That could me just be me telling on myself, but <laughs> like right. children don't know how to like healthfully handle relationships like that so of course you're gonna like speaking for myself like the notion that my like my friends have other friends 
Uh, no, <laughs> absolutely not. You are only allowed to have other friends in so much as it allows you to bring stories to our friendship and we can dunk on other people together. That is the oh, I'm allowed to have other friends. That's fine. But you are only allowed to be my friend. I, I no sharing. <laughs> so like, again, I'm telling on myself a little bit there right. because as a, that's how I like that's how I was as a child and I'll admit to it. Mm-hmm. So I so like seeing that reflected in this. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. I see. But also, like, it's real weird and not great to have all of the women in this fighting over Peter. Well, yeah. And I think like what you bring up a good point is it's toying this line between them being children and them being weirdly adolescent. Um, when I was a kid, that whole scene when Wendy is like, sewing the shadow onto peter and then she tries to kiss him i totally recognize that as flirting when i was a child like that didn't seem just like playful you know kids being kids that was but and i think it, it doesn't help that like wendy presents herself as like a very mature child you know she's basically like and this will get into my next reading on her but like okay we'll just go into it because at this point we're already do there. it but hold the ripcord <sighs> It's frustrating watching this and thinking about gender and childhood because watching this movie the second time around, I really realized like Wendy, like even though the point of the film is like preservation of childhood and Wendy escaping so that she doesn't have to grow up, to me, it was painfully apparent throughout the whole film that she has already grown up. Um, She basically like (laughs) goes to Neverland you know, and she's excited to go and everything, but like she never really gets to join in on any of the fun, right? So like while the boys go off to go hunt the Native Americans, you know, Wendy, she gets to go do what she wants to do, which is to see the mermaids. But like if you notice there, she doesn't want to go play and like with the boys, right? She wants to go and just like do something that, you know, isn't necessarily like playing. It's just to visit the mermaids and talk to them or just to see them, right? Additionally, when they're at the Native American camp, she's not allowed to participate in what in the party because the whole time the one lady is telling her to go get firewood. Every time she tries to participate, she's told, no, you got to go fill this domestic role and contribute in like this sort of domestic way, right? You're supposed to help in the background to make sure this, you know, celebration goes on without a hitch. So she never really like And even in the beginning of the movie, right, John and Michael are the ones who are playing Peter Pan and Captain Hook. And Wendy kind of like, I guess, going into what you said about mothers, fulfills this role as a mother as just like providing the stories, right? She like corrects them if she gets something, they get something factually incorrect, but she's not the one playing. She is not the one fighting and, you know, with the sword or anything. Instead, Wendy is like walking around the room doing what appears to be chores or at least she's helping Nana tidy up, right? She folds a towel. Um, she takes a bowl and a, pic- and a pitcher out of the room, which is what I'm guessing they use to wash in some sort of way. And even when she's with Peter and they're at School Rock, like she's not the one fighting off Captain Hook with Peter. She's kind of like this passive observer on the sidelines until like Peter's about to die. And then she's like, Peter, watch out. And then like, you know, it's fine, right? But it's this like, helper role right it's always this like sideline assistant role she never really gets to mm-hmm. be a child and even like the purpose of her going to neverland is to be a mother 
right? It's not to, like, be part of the crew. So all this to say, throughout the movie, we never really get to see her be a kid. The movie presents this gendered notion of childhood where girls, just because they're expected to be mothers, and start training to be mothers from day one. That's why we see Wendy cleaning around the nursery and worrying about Peter's safety and telling stories of Peter Pan instead of pretending like she is in one. Um, And it's especially interesting when compared to Alice in Wonderland, which came just before Peter Pan. Because Alice in Wonderland seems to encourage girls to have an imagination and to be active in the adventure that they are on. And to me, watching all this now, I realized why as a kid I liked her so much as a character. Because I think as I like grew up, I felt like I had to like grow up kind of early just based on things that happened in my life and never really like when it came to like playing with kids like I felt like I kind of like had to grow out of that at a certain like a lot earlier than everyone else so a lot of my childhood was um standing on the sidelines watching people play and just having to like kind of maybe supply (laughs) comments here and there to feel like I was part of it but never actually being able to be part of that because I was forced to grow up early right Mm -hmm. so and I think like that's why I connected so much with her as a kid like I dressed up as her for Halloween like a couple years in a row and like now it's kind of it was interesting to recognize that but then in like it was weird I felt conflicted because I was like oh I like noticed all this stuff and I recognize that but then you're like oh well that's kind of sad when you think about it like it's kind of a sad role to play in the movie altogether um Mm -hmm. yeah And it makes Neverland seem like this boys club where boys and girls both get to not physically age, but girls still have to play this role of the adult while the boys get to remain youthful and childlike. And as a kid who loved adventure and fantasy and wanted to be whisked away into a fantasy world, I I don't know. I feel like I was selling myself short and not telling myself I could want so much out of whatever adventure I was on instead of just like owning it, you know? As a 24-year-old, that's really sad to think about now. And I want to go and tell my younger self to go and be adventurous and to make your own path and to do cool stuff. But I've also been a fearful and anxious person for most of my life. So maybe that's why I liked that bystander role more when I was a kid. I don't know. Tasman also talked a lot about the fantasy and magic in Peter Pan and says that it's the reason why she kept going back to the movie as a kid. Well, while we're on the topic of Peter Pan, mm-hmm. you know, you've mentioned before, it's like one of your favorite films. It just makes you feel warm and fuzzy. You love it. Yeah. Um, what about it? Like, it was resonates. the magic. Okay. Absolutely the magic. Similar, to, Similarly to um, Alice in Wonderland, I think. It's the, you know, you're just living a normal life and then suddenly you get whisked away in the middle of the night or you you find uh you you just see a rabbit that's talking and you're like hang on a second that's not right and that's sort of what you always wanted as a kid and especially as a child I'd be like I'm just gonna keep an eye out on all of the rabbits around me maybe if I I should leave my window unlocked every single night just in case and to an extent, like, because obviously as a child, you haven't experienced the, the hardships of reality. <laughs> so that's still an option. Mm-hmm. But um, th- there's this incredible Neil Gaiman quote, which I love, which is, don't grow up, it's a trap. And I think that is so applicable to especially creatives. 
um, because while you have to grow up and get jobs and sort out mortgages and tax and stuff, it's important to still be in touch with that childish side of you. And I was watching something recently, I can't remember which film it was, but it was some sort of children's fantasy. And I was trying to think, like, if someone told me, oh, by the way, um, I can, like, look at this, I feel like I can really trust you, and they can suddenly create fire with their hands, like, I'd be like, hang on, what the fuck? But also tell me everything and take me with you to this magical world that you're from. And I feel like that childish sense I, I still have, and I do feel like it's because of films like like the Barbie films and Peter Pan and whatnot, mm-hmm. there's a part of me that's still thinking, while I love my life, surely, surely magic exists somewhere. Surely. And we just aren't aware of it. I guess that's why I write fantasy as well. Mm-hmm. It's like that desperate need for there to be more good things in the world than just what there is. Which is funny because a lot of the time, fantasy, while it is it's magical and it's different fantasy is always a dark right like in peter pan we have captain hook in alice we have the red queen so it's never exactly warm and fuzzy and nice (laughs) so it is interesting how humans gravitate towards fantasy maybe it's just the otherness in a way Mm -hmm. it's just something that's so different to what we know yeah it's like there's an escapism Mm. with it you know it's like you kind of said you one day you're whisked up because of magic or you follow a white a white rabbit and you know mm. you go into a whole new world that's different than what you know yeah it allows you to escape your personal reality um yeah and for someone like you who you know you write and you're an artist you're a creator you have an imagination so it allows your imagination to just ponder and explore and everything right yeah totally yeah I was talking to an aunt in England um, about why I like reading fantasy. And I said how it's about escapism. And she's a big reader as well. And she was like, oh, that's so interesting. I never thought about it like that. Because for her, when she wants escapism, she goes for novels written in or set in the 1800s in England. Mm. So for her, the escapism, which I, I do get sometimes with like Pride and Prejudice and stories that I've grown up with, I get that similar sort of escapism in the 1800s but I don't have that same want of living in that society I guess because it's real we know all of the bad things that also happened at that time in the real world Mm -hmm. whereas I'm like well if I could disappear to oh god I'm trying to think of a fan I was gonna say I don't want to go to Game of Thrones that would be the absolute worst no you'd die Um, we'd all die we would all die instantly yes like um uh, the the Holly Black books the uh book series that starts with the cool prince while it has some like really really dark things i would love to go somewhere that everyone has magical powers and rural magical creatures and i just avoid the evil shit you know right i just want to be a normal person in this fantasy world and not be involved in all of the murder and political drama Like, can we just talk about the fact that, like, Peter Pan gaslights Wendy, like, the entire beginning of that movie? And I don't want to say gaslight, but he just is, I know he's supposed to be a kid and he's just supposed to be rude. But, like, when Wendy's talking and he just goes, girls talk too much. And she, like, laughs and goes, oh, yeah, girls talk. And then she realizes what he says and she's like, oh. And then gets really sad. And then when um, 
she like Tinkerbell says something and Wendy's like, what did she say? And Peter's like, oh, she says that you're a big, ugly girl. And then she does the same thing. She laughs at first and then it dawns on her what that means. And she kind of is like, oh, like I am surprised she was so good natured throughout the whole thing because like they're shitty. I... I get what you're saying. I want to push back a little bit on the gaslighting thing because that makes it sound intentional. Oh, Boy, young, I didn't mean to y- say gaslight. It, it was just more yeah. like being a little yeah, turd. Yeah, he's, he's a shitty little boy without a filter. Like they'll just they'll 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 just say whatever like pops into their heads. Mm-hmm. Like that drama that drama Laney bit where he's like, children will just attack the thing you are most sensitive about. Yes, and it's just like, look at that tall man. He's got feminine hips. <laughs> um. Which, like, it's not, again, it's not nearly as intentional as, like, that kind of a thing. But mm-hmm. Peter just being, like, a stand-in for, like, a 8 through 12, 8 through 12-year-old boy. Just, children will just say whatever comes into their head, regardless of how nice or rude it may be. Mm-hmm. So, I get, it, it's, it. he's treating her like utter shit mm-hmm. through this whole thing. But, like... That is also what boys are, what boys are expected to do, Mm -hmm. because I don't want to say this is how boys behave, because that gets dangerously close to boys will be boys and just being like, like, I'm not excusing any of it, but like, yeah. In terms of representing a young boy, which is what Peter Pan is or who Peter Pan is, they, that's right. They made, they followed that well. No, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, like, the whole movie, like, I kind of had this realization <laughs> while watching it where I was like, yeah, I didn't really like Peter Pan as a kid, like, as a character. I never really, like, I don't know, he never, like, I think he, like, he never, he didn't annoy me as much back then as he did now, but, like, it was just this realization that, like, I never watched, like, I had a lot of friends who watched the movie for him because they all, like, loved Peter Pan as, like, a character, mm-hmm. but for me it was never about him necessarily, it was just, you know, he just was there and the fight scene right. as a kid, you're like, oh, swords. So cool. Yeah. I know I definitely watched it for him. Really? As a kid, but not for him, but more like what he represented. Mm. Like the idea of like, oh, man, you tell me I could just dip out of here and not have to deal with my parents. <laughs> totally on board because like like uh, the darlings remind me a whole bunch of my parents mm. and i'm just like i don't want to deal with any of this goodbye and just get get out of there as hard and as fast as possible right um which is funny because looking back on it i'm like he handled it the complete wrong way but i get why mr darling's upset i get why he's Tell upset Tell me about it like, like okay. it, they're being <laughs> demons what don't draw on my clothes don't do it we're do- like don't take the cufflinks my guy don't <laughs> when- do it in the beginning, when he's like searching through his drawers and he's just being an anxious mess, and he's I, just smacking his head all over the place, I'm like, "Oh my guy, I get you." I know me I, too. <laughs> I said, "Why is Mr. Darling me?" <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, totally get that. But no, that's interesting. Like, okay, but like, funny, like switching gears a little bit. If you were a lost boy, what animal skin would you wear? I don't know. Um, I mean, fucking the goat. The first thing that came into my head was a dolphin, but that's but <laughs> dolphins like fucking don't happen on land. Uh, 
So I guess like if we're talking land animals, probably a horse, honestly. Yeah, that makes sense. Sorry, you said like you wanted to dip out, you know, and all that stuff when you were a kid. And then I was just trying to picture you as a lost boy. And then I was like, okay, but what animal skin would he wear? That No, that's entirely fair. No, I don't think you were like, I wanted to dip out so hard. I would like write letters to Peter Pan in like in character. And my my parents would like write back as Peter, which was like the cutest shit. And like, the, like the one unequivocally good parenting thing they did. <laughs> um, oh, that's and so precious. <laughs> it's so precious, but it's so weird watching this. I'm like, yeah, I get why I like this. It's pretty. There's a lot of cool stuff and like the adventure aspect. Mm-hmm. But then like the whole the whole second act with the, the natives happen. And it's mm. like, ah, yeah. Mm. So and I, I thought, honestly, I thought the thing with um, Tiger Lily and Skull Cave happened way later in the movie than it does. That happens at like the 40% mark. Yeah. And it, I'm like, oh, we're already here. Okay. Well, and it's because they keep bouncing back to hook on the ship, right? Which is why I think it feels earlier than it does. Because, yeah, I thought the same thing, too. I was like, oh, okay. Like, I thought, again, I thought that was, like, way towards... Because it feels like it's dark enough that you feel like it's something Mm -hmm. toward the end. But speaking about the song, What Makes the Red Man Red, I'm just going to pull out a few uh, lyrics. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, you go ahead and do that. I have a pretty good summation of this whole se- this whole sequence, mm-hmm. but I'll let you go first. Yeah, I got a few things to say. So something really interesting happened in the past week as we were preparing to yeah. talk about Peter Pan. Yeah, it did. There was an, an announcement that came out where um, Peter Pan as a movie is no longer available on kids' profiles on Disney+. And, or Dumbo as well. Dumbo as well. Additionally, um, I don't know if they just and be- that with that decision they just now put the content warning on Peter Pan um, because like again like this is the first time I've watched it on Disney Plus. But and what they said it was you know just the racial stereotypes that we see in the what makes the Red Man Red Red Man Red song, but also just the representation of Native Americans in the film. And I think, like, really, like, Disney's whole thesis about the Native Americans in this movie is very well summarized in the lyrics of the song. Um, So there's this one line in the very beginning when um, they say, like, why does he say how? And the reasoning in the lyrics is that the, the, the Indian didn't know much, so he asked how, and then he was able to learn a lot. And the reason why that's not great is because it depicts native americans as inherently stupid and inherently unable to navigate the more i would say white world you know which like when you think about the history of native americans like you know they lived on the continent before the white settlers came and it just honestly really just shows like yeah these white people came and just like took over everything and the native americans had to change their ways to match the white people's ways just to survive um but again like i said before just depicts them as being inherently stupid um and also just kind of like allows imperialism and like excuses it <laughs> like cultural imperialism ex- especially mm-hmm. while while simultaneously just erasing the fact that 
native people have their own languages. Well, funny you say languages, because there's a line that says Hana means what Ghana means, and Ghana, oh no, Hana means what Mana means, and Ganda means that too. So it's this idea that like, their language, it doesn't really matter because it's all repetitive. It all means the same thing. You know, there's no significance all, yeah. in all. It's and, all nonsense. It's all yeah. nonsense. Yeah. And it also shows English as the superior language, the superior way to communicate because it is more specific and not as, um, and I don't mean this because I believe it because this, but this is how the song depicts this culture, but as a primitive culture, mm-hmm. right? Which is deeply funny because as far as languages go, English is t- trash. <laughs> English is a trash-ass language that makes no goddamn sense. Oh, yeah. So at the very end, as it's like... And then it, like they do the last, what makes the red man red. The lyrics are, This is the real true story of the red man, no matter what's been written or said. So when you look at that immediately, like on the surface, you're like, Okay, they're saying this, and these are Native Americans on screen. So like... It presents this tale that, like, you know, these, like, reasons that they're singing about as truth, as their story. They are claiming their story. But really, like, when you think about it, like, white people wrote this song. Mm -hmm. And this is, like, the white person's interpretation of the Native American culture. So it's extremely misleading. Like, you know, it's literally them claiming, like, this is the truth. No matter what else you've heard, this is what's real. But that's not the case at all. And just serves to completely undermine, like, their culture entirely. I find it funny that you refer to this as an interpretation when this is, like, my note on this whole song is just, how is this nothing but racist boomer memes with some casual sexism thrown in? Because, like, they get a fucking mother-in-law joke in there. Yes! Are you fu- like, like, I was this- I was just bowled over by all the race by all the blatant racism and then the mother-in-law joke popped up and I had to pause it and go walk around for a minute. And I'm just like, this feel like this feels like you could slap minions on it and put it in a Facebook group and it would still it would like get laugh reacts from 80 year olds. I'm just like, I cannot cannot fathom that anyone thought this was OK, let alone thought it was funny. And it's also just terrible because they do a lot with like just gender and colorism in this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you look at the conventionally, conventionally, like the Native American women who are supposed to be beautiful, right? They're not as red skinned and they have more, I want to say white features. Like Tiger Lily is like literally like could be if she had like white skin drawn as the darling kids not necessarily the people in the native american tribe right Mm -hmm. and when you look at that mother-in-law scene right (laughs) like the woman that the the guy is like flirting with is very conventionally beautiful but then the mother lost mother-in-law steps in and like that stark contrast in features she's drawn more cartoonishly more outlandishly like and also like if you uh, everyone except the chief male wise is all drawn the same maybe like height difference and like weight difference but same hairstyle that covers their eyes the same nose like it all it's just like kind of like it's 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 really prevalent after the um the native americans captured the boys and they did Mm -hmm. that little parade and they're all like tied up and everything 
it's like it's because you get like you get real good views of every single one, like mm-hmm. all of them from the side, mm-hmm. and there are like there are there are significant differences in how most of them are drawn, but they are all equally treated as subhuman caricatures, mm-hmm. and it's real gross. It's bad. It's real bad. It's bad. Um, and then like even just the way that other characters in the film talk about them you know like hook just you know in the first 20 minutes uses a slur two slurs when he talks about them um john john's the older one john has that whole line when they're planning to capture the native americans where he's like quote the indian is cunning but not intelligent and you're like my dude i feel like that is that's it's real bad, but I also feel like that is played as a joke, considering the fact that they are about to just get jumped, right? Real hard, right? That being said, John, when they're like trying to, when Peter's like, "What do y'all want to do?" and he's like, "I would much like to examine the Aborigine." I'm like, "Motherfucker, you sound like someone out of a Jules Verne novel." Yes, shut up. But then, especially. Um... At the celebration scene at the camp, at the end, after the lady tells Wendy to go get firewood for the second time, and she's like, no, like, or no, it's not then. But, like, at the, before that happens, Uh she comes back with, like, and she's looking around, and she sees John and Michael, like, totally taking part in the celebration and acting, like, you know, dancing like the Native Americans, and she's aghast at how they are acting. Um, And then when they're back at Hangman's Tree... (laughs) She, like, basically is like, do you just want to, like, run around like savages all day? And so you're just, and you're sitting there and you're like, uh, oh, that's not good. It's bad. It's bad. It's, so, it's bad. It's so bad. And so, like, you just, like, they are, they are, throughout the whole movie, like, even if, like, that whole scene aside, the whole, like, throughout the whole movie, they are described as savages and mm-hmm. as this primitive group of people which is so not true <laughs> bold of you to assume this movie considers natives people i do have one more comment i want to make though that i just okay. remembered um and it kind of goes with this whole like childhood you know theme throughout the movie and how the boys play and stuff i didn't really realize this until the end of the movie when peter don's hooks style like you know coat and hat and then they all play pirate to get the the kids home the darling kids home but he like the native american culture to him is just another costume to put on it's just another game to play right and through that like appropriation happens i'm lexi tafoya i'm currently in my third year at the University of Tulsa. I am from Tulsa. And um, yeah, one of my thing, one of the things I love to do is uh, make beadwork in my spare time. And I use that to help pay for my tuition. Lexi is a member of the Cherokee Nation and a staunch advocate for indigenous representation in media. So I wanted to get her take on Peter Pan. I would first like to note that John describes the Native Americans in the movie as being part of the, quote, Blackfoot tribe, belonging to the Algonquin group, end quote, which is not in Oklahoma. 
even though the Native Americans in the movie are, and I say this with heavy sneer quotes, not based off her tribe, she said she had a lot of thoughts and feelings about the way that they were portrayed in the film. Yeah, um, I have seen Peter Pan. I've got multiple strong feelings about it. Um, Definitely um, a combination of um, reiterating the stereotype of Native Americans being savages, depicting them only in fictional settings and, um, and only depicting them in the most stereotypical ways. Um, and also, yeah, just uh, like, especially, I mean, yeah, especially like with how um, like even like even Wendy, um, cause like when you see them in the way that they're just, you know, like that night when the boys and Wendy are um, hanging out with that tribe. Um, Wendy gets frustrated because the boys are acting out and she, you know, she's like, you're just going to stay here and act like savages. And that part always angered me so much because obvious, you know, like obviously she knows nothing, mm-hmm. um, you know, knew nothing. And even, in, you know, and I, can't remember like how old she was supposed to be in that movie but like you know you could also kind of tell that like her way of thinking reflected um what you know like what a lot of european um like the way how a lot of europeans um and you know way back when had um envisioned native americans and um yeah even just even the art and the way that they were drawn was definitely in a more caricature kind of style um for example like the chief a lot of um the other you know side characters and um and the woman who was telling wendy to do work um and then of course um oh gosh oh yeah tiger lily the way and how tiger lily was the only one who was drawn you know with these gentle features you know um and you know like there are native americans who have smaller noses and have you know round eyes but um it just felt weird to me how like in that context it seemed more like she was you know drawn to seem more european with darker skin instead of um instead of you know being depicted like the other Native American characters in that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all around not, you know, not one of the best films when uh, depicting Native Americans. So knowing Tasman is a Londoner who loves Peter Pan, I was especially interested to get her take on the representation of Native Americans in the film because their existence is so tied to North America. I figured it would also give me a glimpse at how people in the UK may view Native Americans and their culture nowadays. I didn't learn anything about, because I'm from the UK, I didn't learn anything about Native Americans at all mm-hmm. until I kind of got into social media and started educating myself through things I've seen on Twitter, of all places. And I fully didn't make the link that the Red Indians in Peter Pan and Native Americans were the same. Interesting. Like, I thought they were almost a created, like, a just fictional clan, in a way. I didn't realize that they were, like, um, major stereotypes of people that actually existed. Okay. I had no idea. 
because especially yeah. they were in Neverland, right? Yeah, yeah. It felt, and everything else there was like mermaids and the pirates and stuff. I thought they were just another kind of like mythical creature, which is what? <laughs> but of course, I was I was three, so I'm not going to beat myself up on it too much, right? And plus, you're and not from America, thing. so like, how would yeah. you're not from the United States? I should say, so like, you wouldn't mm-hmm. have known otherwise, right? Yeah, it's like until you're educated on a topic. You can't beat you or you shouldn't beat yourself up for not knowing it because mm-hmm. how on earth were you meant to? There's so much in the world and we never, we didn't learn anything about the United States in, in primary school at all, I don't think. Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't have learned anything about the UK in primary, like yeah. when we were in elementary school. So I think that that checks out. I'm it's- more aware of it in Australia, probably because, you know, we took over there. So yeah. that's more of like directly our fault. Um, I say that like, America is also our fault. Um, so just generally just sorry. On behalf of my ancestors, we fucked up big time. Um, but because I like, I have some family in Australia and yeah. I feel like Eng- England is still uh, linked with Australia quite a lot. Mm-hmm. So I knew more about um, indigenous and Aboriginal people from Australia than I did about America. Do you have anything else you want to bring up? on that or just in no, general no. i mean i i mean yeah because we still haven't talked about captain hook we okay. still haven't talked about the crocodile and also just like it, this movie is so weird for me because this would be top five disney for me if it weren't for the entire middle chunk of this movie being just abhorrently racist Mm -hmm. through and through and inexcusable because the up up until the up until the um up until the native up until the natives uh native americans hit the screen love every single second of this movie right i love it it's It's incredible so good (laughs) i had i had a genuine emotional reaction to the to um you can to the you can fly sequence and almost had a breakdown when um michael puts the pixie dust on nana and is like come on nana and i'm just like she can't go with you she's stuck to the tree (laughs) and then she wait she waved goodbye and fucking nana defense squad activate okay i did not appreciate her as a child but that dog is one of the best characters in the film <laughs> that dog is trying so hard she just cares about them so much and i love the line at the beginning where the narrator's just like nana had opinions but she kept them to herself as she's like tidying yeah, up the she whole did. room <laughs> you go nana keep and your opinion then... keep your opinions for book club and then just roast them <laughs> and i love like when um you know at the end when like he trips over mr darling trips over nana and then like he's the one who like crashes into the dresser and everyone's like poor nana i'm like yes absolutely yeah poor (laughs) nana indeed mr Uh, like mr i understand why mr darling's upset but also poor nana (laughs) poor nana and then like she goes outside and you're just and the mom's like it's warm she'll be fine Uh, excuse me (laughs) you don't know what the weather report's looking like (laughs) Uh, if it starts raining that's on you yeah but no i like i totally agree watching this movie i like i was just giddy the whole time i like not the whole time but like you know especially in that beginning Mm -hmm. part i love 
and this is because I'm a theater kid, right? But the theatrics and the musicality of it is just, it makes it so enjoyable because everything is like, it's kind of almost like you're just watching this big musical piece because the music fits so well with the action and it all just kind of comes together and it's like the action is orchestrated in such a way that it's like enjoyable. Like, you know, like the jokes land at certain downbeats and you're just like, it's just like, you know, you're on Mm -hmm. this like ride and it's so... Oh, it's so good. It's so good. I mean, good. if we're talking theatrics, we need to talk about the the crocodile in the room here. <laughs> uh, Captain Hook rules. He's so... Okay, thank you. I was so worried that I'd be the only one who, like, enjoyed oh, no. his character. Oh, no. He was no. so good. He's incredible. He's got the... His outfit is perfection. (laughs) His whole vibe is amazing. Because he's got... He strikes that right balance between, like... Like, kind... Like, you believe that he... You believe that he thinks he's threatening. And that, like... And that he's really trying to go for it. Mm -hmm. That man is not a threat. In any way, shape, or form. At all. It's funny because I just watched Stardust... And it reminded me, like, not entirely of Robert De Niro, but, like, you know, I could, like... (laughs) Robert De Niro in Stardust is a bigger threat than Captain Hook is in this. That's what I was thinking. And then, like, uh, and I think it also has to do a lot with the voice acting for Captain Hook. It is an incredible performance. He is, like, every time he was on screen... I was enjoying like those scenes so much. And in the back of my head, I'm like, is this B plot just like filler? Like, is it going on for too long? But then I really couldn't bring myself to care that much (laughs) because I just was like, really, I was just, you know, he just, I just loved watching him, this performance in the movie. Absolutely. No, he's, he's amazing. And I get why some people are like skeeved out by him because like he is kind of queer coded to a degree mm-hmm. um not to the same degree that the queer coding begins to pop up in later disney stuff mm-hmm. but it's definitely like foppish uh and like he 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 feels more like a early modern english dandy than he does like any current depiction he's not of- a ratcliffe Correct. You know, like he, I think, like the the you get the foppish and dandy kind of feel just through his attire and kind of the way he carries himself. Um, yeah. You know, like because especially when you compare him to everyone else on the ship, you know, everyone like their clothes are tattered and probably dirty, um, but mm-hmm. he always presents himself as very clean and you know he's like, I want my best coat for this, my best dress coat. You know, like it's like, but it's not. Like Ratcliffe level, uh, Ratcliffe yeah. level of Ratcliffe is that his name? I said that. Right, uh, right. Great Mouse. Are we talking Great Mouse Detective? Oh no, I was talking about Pocahontas, but oh, also okay. Great Mouse Detective. Yes, because R- like Radigan, that's that his name. Dude. Yeah. Radigan Defense Club activate. <laughs> Radigan rules. We'll talk about him later, but god damn. <laughs> but, um, but no, like also like. <sighs> There's a certain cast of Disney villains that I am going to be extremely partial to anyways mm-hmm. for reasons Alex will groan about if I mention by name. Um, <laughs> I already know. <laughs> I know, but like, I, I, it has to come up. It has to come up because again, just do it. Just do Kingdom it. Kingdom Hearts is such an intrinsic way. 
intrinsic part of how I feel about these because Peter Pan has popped up in most of in a bunch of those as well. And Captain Hook is like a key part of what makes that first game so good. Like one of the final sections of that game is you on Captain Hook's ship, like trying to like rescue Tinkerbell and get shit out of there. So like there's there's a moment where like you get hit with pixie dust and like Sora's reaction in Kingdom Hearts is equivalent to the excitement Wendy and Co feel when that hits and they he's got like some similar shit going on of like we can fly and it's like I really flew and you also like beat the shit out of Captain Hook and it's great and it's awesome and Captain Hook's level of intimidation there is as equivalent as it is in the movie like he postures and talks a big game but is ultimately just the biggest fucking pushover and like just the way that the way that that game taps into the cultural perception of Disney while also staying true to the source material while getting around a lot of the weird, weird, a lot of the racist shit is admirable. Mm -hmm. And I know, I know you like roll your eyes and groan every time I bring it up, but like, again, it is an incredibly large part of one, my conception of Disney, Mm -hmm. but I know a lot of, a lot of, our contemporaries that like hang out in the video game, like are aware of the video game space. Like it has shaped their preconceptions and ideas of what Disney is as well. So I would be remiss not to keep bringing it up when it happens. Harrison, I just tease you. You know that I know I don't care. Like <laughs> I know, I know, but also, uh, yeah, just there's, there's the fact that like, hooks so well defined that like in 2002 people can go back to it and be like oh yeah no we know exactly how to carry this forwards Mm -hmm. like hook hook just rules across the board in basically any adaptation yes he does like it's just he's a good character and i think Mm -hmm. a lot of it you know you can stem from the fact that he has a very like his motive is obvious, you know, it's no, there's nothing convoluted about like his objectives in the movie. Right. And I think what's really cool, like when a story in a storytelling perspective is when you have a character with such like narrow tunnel, tunnel vision, and they just want something so bad, you really get to see like the different lengths, you know, you see them push to their limits. You see how far they would go to do something. And I think that something like you get like, that's kind of intimate when you think about it. Right. You really Mm -hmm. get an idea of like, you get a really holistic idea of who they are, um, which is, and I, I loved every minute of it. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I didn't notice so much when I was a kid watching it, but was really apparent now was like how obsessed he was with tracking down Peter Pan. Like that whole conversation um, in the very first pirate scene where the crew is talking to Smee and they're like, you know, basically like, oh, Hook's lost his game. He doesn't know how to slit a throat anymore. You know, like, he, we're just here because he's so obsessed with Peter Pan. Like, you know, and they kind of look down on him for that. Like, I never really realized, like, oh, like, he's, you know, he's kind of lost his marbles a bit. Like, you know, like, mm-hmm. this is this has become an obsession. And you really see it, like... His eyes are puffy all the time and he has dark circles under them. And you can just tell like he is so obsessed with his motive that it like, you know, he isn't sleeping. He isn't really functioning. Like Smee even makes a comment where he's like, remember when you were jolly and like, you know, you were a lot happier back in the day. 
And I think there's kind of two readings that you can do with Hook. And because his existence as a character is so entirely dependent on Peter Pan, it really depends on how you read Peter Pan as a character, right? If you read Peter Pan as a young boy, (laughs) you know, like just a boy, physical, all that, you know, you could just do like, oh, he, a revenge plot. He cut off my hand. I'm trying to get my revenge. You could also like read into the whole pedophile reading that a lot of people look into where it's like, but I, that's, I didn't really get that vibe. Like, no, not it at wasn't all. that at all. I know people have done that before, but it just wasn't, that wasn't really, like you said, it's not really what I got. But then yeah. I think if you read Peter as Mrs. Darling reads Peter, which is a symbol of childhood, Hook then his obsessive quest to capture Peter Pan is almost like, or to kill Peter Pan reads to me as there is something about his childhood that really like he's trying to let go of or trying to forget it's almost like a like a trauma kind of response you could read it as like you know maybe there's something that happened when he was a kid that really affected him and it's still haunting him to the like you know it's still like haunting him and Mm -hmm. taunting him and so his desire to kill peter pan is his desire to basically like kill off his childhood and to move on like you know he is trying to he is trying to get over whatever has traumatized him but like the end of the day he can't you know because those traumas like at the end of the day they don't go away you know Mm -hmm. you kind of just have to learn how to you know like make either like learn how to cope and make peace with it and all that stuff Mm -hmm. but it's never gonna actually leave you so then it's just a really sad tale of this guy who's like (laughs) upset by something and he doesn't move on i will go one further with that oh please because we can't really treat this is gonna sound weird we can't treat hook like a character that exists in and of his own self because neverland is basically entirely metaphorical right Mm -hmm. so in as as we talked about in the history section a lot of the time the actor playing mr darling plays captain hook and they continue that they continue that tradition here because the voice actor is the same yes so like the fact that Mr. Darling is like, let's like, if Peter Pan is like the symbol of like childhood and youth and innocence, let's carry that forwards a bit. Mr. Darling at the beginning, like when he, when they leave for that party, that motherfucker is like dressed the hell up. That guy's got a cape. He's got a cane. (laughs) He's got a top hat. He fancy. He is fancy. And his, and his buried treasure is his cufflink. So it all comes back to his like appearance and his, like adult persona, uh-huh. which I think is interesting that like we carry that forwards and Hook is so put together and foppish and fancy. Mm-hmm. And the fact that like he's trying to Hook is Hook is trying to squash this like symbol of childhood innocence and uh, freedom, basically. And that's what Mr. Darling is doing as well in that opening mm-hmm. and is like trying to rip that away from them and force them to grow up. Because in a way, Hook is also trying to force everyone on that island to grow up and put aside childish games while himself being unable to do so. Uh, and then, like, at the end, Mr. Darling seeing the the cloud boat thing and remind, and being reminded of, like, oh, yeah, 
I was once a child too. These feelings like can't really go away. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that like even as an as an adult, like you try and like force yourself to present as what an adult is expected to present as, and that um the, your your inner child is still there regardless of how much you try to suppress it, and you can never truly suppress it, which is why like the 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 fight between hook and peter never really resolves itself it's just gonna keep it's an eternal struggle between these two (laughs) there are two wolves inside of you one is an adult one is a child (laughs) you are confused well and that's makes sense because i was very disappointed at how that end fight ended peter just pulls down a flag and he's like gotcha and you're like really like he had you like he he was going he like there's he no was, way you got around that sword. Kill you. He, there's no way that you just like oh oof around that sword. Sorry, Athena walked in, and okay. like <laughs> just pulled a flag down and covered him. Like there's no way. It's almost like with Hook, he didn't want to act. Like he couldn't kill his childhood. Like right. Not only did he can he not because it's always with you, but it's almost like he didn't want to. Right. Because there's still probably bits of it that he wants to hold on to, even though it is painful for him i think it's very funny that you keep you can't ironically you can't let go of hook as a whole person in and of himself when i'm like no he's purely metaphorical of the notion of adulthood Mm -hmm. he's not a character he is just a metaphor so any like like it is it is not so much he can't let go of his childhood so he keeps pursuing peter peter is childhood and hook is adulthood the two are constantly in clash I'm not reading Hook as a whole character of, of himself. He is a representative of the expectations of adulthood. Well, then then what you do with that is you pull it out of just Hook of himself, and it's like a reading of all of us. Like, one person cannot yes. actually, like, get rid of exactly. one or the other. They're both part of you, and, like, you can't kill Absolutely. it. Yeah. And they are using Mr. Darling, essentially as the representation of that because he's so staunchly like like kill your kill your childhood and become an adult at the beginning and then his like remembrance like the like him remembering like i i remember this feeling i remember that boat something Mm -hmm. happened a while ago but i can't put my finger on it Mm -hmm. like the notion that like no you can never do that like even in the most staunchly adult like the those of us who try as hard as possible to be adults like the dads in our life there's like it's still there you can't get rid of it it reminds me of that tweet that's like being in your 20s is just rediscovering all the things you loved about being 13 yeah (laughs) which is so true yeah and it's it's absolutely a generational thing because i feel like our cohort of people are way more in touch with the stuff we liked as kids Mm mm-hmm than the boomers basically mm. so it's definitely it's a it's it feels like a generational thing of like who is willing to actually see that mm. and go the extra take those those steps forward because i know my parents look askance at me for like getting into robot models again and St- the fact that I like still play video games and like, how have you not outgrown this? I got super, I got back into comics a while ago and they're like, aren't those for children? Like, no. Well, yes, but there's nothing wrong with that, right. you know? Right. No, that totally, yeah, that makes sense.
talked about this before, how um, Captain Hook was one of those characters that feels like a paedophile. Like, even as a kid, I didn't understand paedophilia or sexual assault or abuse, but it gave me that feeling of um, being violated. Mm-hmm. So there were, the, there were the two fears. There was the creepy man that might touch me places that he shouldn't and then also maybe this crocodile will just cut me in half with his teeth the ticking crocodile scared me shitless as a kid yes um i was absolutely terrified but he was my dad's favorite character he was like he's so funny and i guess if i were to watch it now it's like how his eyes kind of move at the same uh, sound of the ticking and my dad's just like oh it's just so funny like look at it and that is 100% something that now I'd be like oh my god that's so funny like I bet they were high when they were drawing it or something <laughs> um but as a kid it was like he is actually going to eat me so that was just like a double whammy mm-hmm. but I think it also makes the the stakes and the villainy of it real you know because yeah. you actually feel these are characters that you feel you can feel threatened by even in everyday life, right? Like, yes, absolutely. Because what are two things you're scared of when you're a child? Like an animal biting you, you know, or like, you know, being mauled. But then also yeah. like creepy men that your parents tell you to avoid. 100%, yeah. And then you mentioned something about the crocodile you wanted to bring up. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think it's obvious that the crocodile, uh, apart from just being incre- an incredible thing to just constantly give Hook something else to worry about and just keep tugging at the back of his mind and remind you that, like, oh, yeah, he is human. The crocodile is just a reminder of the inevitable march of time towards your doom that haunts all adults. Because Hook knows the crocodile is going to get him eventually. Yeah. And it's just listening to his time tick away while the crocodile is there. Interesting. He's the Grim Reaper that won't leave him alone. So just including that in a kid's thing while never explicit in something intended for children while never explicitly stating that like, hey, the crocodile is just the Grim Reaper (laughs) constantly hovering in the background waiting, waiting for all of us is wild. It's interesting. Well, there's a lot, and there's a few things in this where you're kind of like, you know, like subliminal adult, I guess, not necessarily themes, but moments. Like, I never truly realized how worried Mrs. Darling was that there was like a pedophile coming into the room every night. Yeah. Like, that really got to me this time. Like, oh, like, yeah, your child says like a man just like, or a person just comes in through the window, and that's why she wants to leave it unlocked. Like, she, Mrs. Darling totally thought that Wendy was violated. Yeah, and <laughs> Mr. Darling being like making fun of that. I'm like, my guy, what? He's like, call Scotland Yard. I'm like, yes, actually, do call Scotland Yard if your daughter is talking about uh, a a man child climbing through the window to get his shadow back. Right. Like, I'm sorry, no. Call then, the cops. And then at the end, when she walks in the room and see Wendy is not in her bed, like you feel like, that in your stomach. You're like. Oh, she's worried that she's gone forever. Like, yeah, no, she's just on the roof. It's fine. Even the beginning. So the very first yeah. line the narrator says, he's like, "This has all happened before, and it will all happen again." I thought but that this was like time it happened in London. Incredible opening lines. Absolutely phenomenal. Top, like top tier shit. Love it. I was gonna say it's very ominous too. You're kind of like, 
I mean, like, if if you did not know what was about to happen and you just hear this guy who's like, it's all happened before and it's going to happen again. My first thought was like, oh, God, who died? Like, what what serial killer? Is this a Jack the Ripper movie? Like, what is going on? But I mean, like doubling like that. It's like like I was saying, adulthood versus childhood. It's something that has happened like. It's something that happens to all of us. It's something we all have to come to grips with and like find that balance ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that in this story, we're focusing on Wendy and having to, having her try to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely like as a kid, the humor was one of the reasons why I liked this movie. Mm-hmm. And it was enjoyable to watch it and just have other little tidbits that made me laugh. So... <laughs> The first scene on the pirate ship when um, <laughs> there's that guy singing up in like the crow's nest. Yeah. And then he goes, the life of a pirate is short. And then Bam. Hook kills him right when he says that. But then Smee says, oh, um, shooting a man in the middle of his credenza. Not good form, sir. <laughs> I died. Smee is incredible, He's and like so it also, funny. it also ha- it's it real. The, again, my favorite, one of my favorite parts of this project is seeing the reoccurring voice roles and how they translate from one movie to the other. Mm-hmm. The, the White Rabbit and Smee, oh my being God. the same dude, incredible. I thought it's his so voice good. sounded familiar, but yeah. I could not pinpoint it. <gasps> Marianne. But no, Smee is also just like a total mood. Like in that scene when Hook's interrogating Tinkerbell and he's just drinking and just gets wasted. I was like, all right, dude. Like, <laughs> you do you, I guess. This is supposed whatever to be a pretty get- critical moment, but you just. But like, whatever gets you through the day. And I, and like uh. the fact that, like, the fact that, like, Peter Pan is inherently about the tension between adulthood and childhood and like coming to grips with that all of the all of the slapstick shit works in this movie it's so good all of it it's It's so good so good it's like it brought me so much joy like and even like the bit where in school rock or school cave um when peter is you know Mm-hmm. impersonating hook and Smee is just going back and forth with tiger lily it's just, it works so well it works so well yeah oh <laughs> uh, it's just man like i said like i watched this movie for the most part just completely like smiling and giddy and quoting scenes that i didn't know i remembered off the top of my head but like there i was just like <laughs> following along that's all from us this week. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. If you like what you heard, be sure to leave us a review. Five stars only, of course. You can find me at play underscore champion on Twitter. And you can find me at Alex underscore Isaac on Twitter. You can also follow the show at Dream Deeper Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And you can write into the show at dreamalittledeeperpod at gmail.com. Special thanks to all of our guests for taking the time to talk to us for this episode. You can follow Tasman's book blog at T Books and Tasman on YouTube and Instagram, and you can find her poetry account at Tasman May Poetry on Instagram. You can find Lexi on Instagram at Lexi Taffy, and you can find her beadwork on Instagram at underscore blue underscore bonnet underscore beads underscore. 
Thank you all so much for listening. Next week, we're talking about the movie Lady and the Tramp. Until then, dream on, silly dreamers. <laughs> I don't know whether or not. This is like for adults, right? This podcast. Not yes. Like kids. yes. It's not aimed at kids. No, okay, it's not cool. aimed at kids. So, relevant to a conversation I was having with my flatmate yesterday when we were talking about a Barbie film. The similar thing happened with uh, Peter Pan. So, Tiger Lily is like kidnapped and bound up and like she's going to be drowned and stuff unless Peter comes and saves her. Yeah. And then similarly in Barbie Mermaidia, the prince is like bound up and someone has to come and save him. I legit think that my kind of love of bondage (laughs) stems from Tiger Lily and Prince Nalu. Legit. Incredible. It's, It's so weird. What the oh fuck? I can't believe I'm saying this on a podcast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sign me up, you know? So, thank you, Disney. <laughs> it's something that you were like, oh, that's hot. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think. As a five year old, <laughs> I love talking to you. We cover every single topic <laughs> under the sun on this damn podcast. This is great. <laughs>